From Jerusalem, Israel, this is From the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel, providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. I'm really very fortunate and, and happy to have as a special guest tonight uh, Michael Oren. Michael Oren is well known. He's an American born Israeli historian, author, politician, former ambassador to the United States, and current member of the Knesset for the Kulanu Party and the Deputy Minister for Diplomacy in the Prime Minister's Office. Michael has written books, articles, and essays on Middle Eastern history and is the author of the New York Times bestselling Power, Faith, and Fantasy and Six Days of War, June 1967, and The Making of the Modern Middle East. Michael has been a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown universities in the United States and at Tel Aviv University. Tel Aviv and Hebrew universities in Israel. The forward named Michael one of the five most influential American Jews and the Jerusalem Post list him as one of the world's ten most influential Jews. Uh, Michael, Ambassador Oren, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Always good to be with you, Philip. Good. So let me get into my questions. We recently witnessed John Kerry's farewell speech regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Part of his speech included a history lesson about this conflict. As a historian, what grade would you give Secretary Kerry? Uh, not a very good one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Seriously passing at all. I, I give, I'll give you some basic, some basic, uh, some basic examples. Um, he... he about 85% of his speech was uh, was voted to castigating the settlements, to criticism of Israel, um, and it was extraordinary that in John Kerry's history, the the there was no mention that the 1993 Oslo Accords was followed by waves of Palestinian terror, culminating in the Second Intifada that took 1,000 Israeli lives, completely unmentioned. Uh, he did not mention the disengagement from Gaza in 2005, in which Israel ripped up 21 settlements to get peace. And what we got was not peace, but thousands of rockets fired at us. He didn't mention the fact that the Palestinians were offered a state, not only in 1937 and 1947, but in 2000 and 2008. And in all cases, they rejected the offers, and most frequently with violence. And finally, uh, Secretary of State Kerry omitted the fact that the Palestinians have refused to negotiate with us. For eight years now, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said unequivocally that he's willing to negotiate face-to-face, anytime, anyplace, Ramallah and Jerusalem, uh, without preconditions. And somehow all of this went unmentioned. To not mention that is not un- to not understand the Israeli mindset, particularly of young people in this country who have no memory whatsoever of the, say, 1979 peace accord between Egypt and Israel, their only memories is of buses exploding and rockets being fired at them. And to uh, to omit mention of that withdrawals from Lebanon and Gaza brought us only terror is to not understand history in the most fundamental way. How would you explain the abstention by the U.S. at the U.N. Security Council? And do you think this would have happened if Hillary Clinton had been elected? Hmm. Well, um, <laughs> you're kind enough to mention my uh, books, uh, Philip. My last book is called Ally. My journey across the American-Israel divide, um, and I have a long uh, section in that book. Uh, it's called Obama 101, 
where I relate how as, a, as an ambassador in 2009, my first task was to figure out who the President of the United States was, understand his worldview. And I, I, I used the tools of an historian and a researcher to go through everything the President had uh, written about the Middle East, everything he had spoken about the Middle East, um, and I put together a profile. And the profile uh, showed a, a person who was deeply committed to the Palestinian cause, who was firmly a firm believer in international institutions such as the United Nations, a person who viewed the Israeli-Palestinian issue as the core conflict in the Middle East, and the core of that conflict was the settlement. And I concluded, this is back in 2009, that uh, whenever given the chance, uh, the president would return to uh, the Palestinian cause, would return to the settlement issue. And a year ago in Knesset, uh, we began discussing what would occur during the window, the period between the United States elections and the uh, the inauguration of the next president. And we, the overwhelming sense was that the president would act during this window. He, have, he would have no more uh, domestic political constraints. And under the Constitution, the president is, is uh, in his final months in office, is anything but a lame duck when it comes to foreign policy. is actually a galloping duck. Uh, there are no constraints whatsoever, not even constitutional constraints. And the assumption was that, that based on his worldview, that he would act uh, in the UN and elsewhere. And as we're speaking tonight, it's not at all certain that uh, what occurred uh, last week in the American extension on the resolution on settlements uh, is the last step that this administration will take on the issue. Wow. Wow. And my second part of the question, do you think if if Clinton had been elected, oh, Hillary Clinton would have been that he would have uh, restrained himself. Um, I still think. I still think this. There's a there's a school of thought up there that said he would not have wanted to have tied her hands, uh, or she might have come to him and said, you know, don't tie my hands. Or there's another school of thought that says he actually would have done this uh, even more energetically, more robustly, if she had been president, in order to provide her with a legal framework for pursuing uh, what he regards as the solution for the conflict, which would be more or less an imposed solution um, of a two-state solution based on the 57 borders. In the end of the day, these hypotheticals have, have limited uh, utility. And what is important to know about the UN resolution is that it represents an immense victory for Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, back in May of 2011, uh, President, uh, Palestinian Authority President Abbas uh, published an op-ed in the New York Times where he said expressly that his goal was not to negotiate with Israel, but to transform the conflict into an international legal issue. Mm. And what uh, the United States did by abstaining and the UN resolution was to do just that. Uh, the issue was taken literally out of the hands of the United States now and, uh, and is, is now in the hands of the Security Council and other UN bodies, perhaps the international criminal courts. And uh, Mahmoud Abbas is doing this not to get a better two-state solution, but to take us down, to destroy our economy. And it's, um, it is one of the greater uh, threats this country has ever faced. Wow. And understand that the ability of the United States now to rescind this, first of all, to rescind it in the Security Council is virtually impossible, because you'd have to ensure that none of the, the countries that voted for it would not veto its rescinding. But beyond that, America's uh, capacity to defend us, to provide us with what I call a diplomatic and, and legal iron dome, really boils down to the threat of American funding uh, of the United Nations. About 25% of the UN budget comes from the United Nations. Uh, defunding or taking economic steps against any country 
uh, that tried to sanction or blockade Israel. Wow. So it's uh, a histo- it was a historic it was a historic vote and worse than probably most of us realize. Um, let me move over to your experience living uh, four years serving in Washington. Can you give our listeners a feel for the atmosphere in Washington D.C. in the weeks leading up to a change in administration? Well, Washington is always, uh, <laughs> it's always a dynamic place. Um, you should know, for those of you who are in the business community, that, that housing prices, real estate, never goes down in Washington. It only goes up. Uh-huh. <laughs> and one of the reasons it always goes up, um, irrespective of what's happening in the, in, in the real, estate, uh, real estate field elsewhere in the United States, because every four years there's a huge turnaround. And if there's an actual change in administration, not just a re-election, you're talking about thousands and thousands of people who are moving into the city and looking for apartments. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the spoil system that, that harkens back to, uh, to Andrew Jackson in the 1820s and 1830s, and uh, where administration comes in and basically everybody changes. Now, there'll be another change set. There'll be another change cycle in two years as people break down physically and emotionally because work in Washington is so intense. Uh-huh. But believe, believe it, so it's always changing. So there's a tremendous amount of excitement, a tremendous amount of uncertainty, particularly about this administration, because uh, so many people in the administration are unknown, uh, unknown to the public, um, and uh, and this is this is an incoming ministry not without its controversies. Um, and I can't tell you for for absolute certainty what its policy is going to be toward the Middle East and and Israel. I, I might I think we're going to talk about this more broadly later, but. Uh, it will definitely be different. How, why do you think the professional pundits, professional political pundits, got it so wrong regarding the recent presidential election? Um, well, they were uh, talking to themselves, and it's the same thing that happened in the Brexit vote in in, uh, in Britain, and it's going to happen increasingly. Uh, there's sort of an internal chatter chamber uh, where pundits speak to to one another. They look at the same polls, um, and the polls are not are. are these conversations taking around are taking place among academic and media elites who pretty much think alike, um, and uh, they're missing the bigger picture. But there is a bigger picture out there. I, I encounter it in Israeli politics all the time. If you if you read um, the Yidiot newspaper, Haaretz newspaper, you'd think that there would be you know sixty eight, seventy members of Meretz in Knesset. Yeah, and the recent poll, the poll that came out, I think today or Friday, it's <laughs> the the opposite. You know what used to be called labor merits is uh, is really shrinking to uh, not it's even disappearing. Being, no, the yeah. left is disappearing. But you wouldn't know that from reading an Israeli paper. That's true. You wouldn't know it from looking, listening to the Israeli news. So this is it's a global phenomenon, and it it underscores the fundamental divide, I believe, certainly in Western politics, the divide between a, a an academically an academic and media elite, which sees itself in increasingly globalized terms. Um, they these elites have more in common with each other, whether they're in Israel, uh, Great Britain, Poland. Or France, they have more in common than they have with many of their countrymen, and their countrymen who are not globalized in their perspective, but nationalist and localized, and not necessarily academically elite. And so that's a fundamental divide, and you're going to see it playing a greater, greater role uh, in, in democratic politics. I live in Israel. You live in Israel. We tend to put Israel uh, as the most important issue. But but how you've you've worked in Washington, you've studied this subject. How hands-on are U.S. presidents when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular, and and the Middle East in general? Well, 
it depends on the president. Uh, I did my PhD on, on the Eisenhower administration, and Eisenhower could be involved in the Middle East, but only from the ninth hole of a golf course, <laughs> Okay, where John Foster Dulles would find him. Some presidents were much more hands-on. Carter, of course, which was uh, kind of obsessive, um, and Barack Obama. Barack Obama in, he made his first phone calls when he was elected. In, when, he was, when he was inaugurated in, 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 in 2009, his first phone calls were to Mahmoud Abbas and other Arab leaders, by the way, before they called uh, then Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Omer. His first interview was on Arab television. Uh, the day after he was in office, his first full day in office, he appointed George Mitchell as his special mediator. Uh, and from that on, he was involved in the Middle East uh, nonstop. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind that the Middle East also doesn't give a president much time not to be involved. Correct. I was in sabbatical uh, at Georgetown in, in 2008, and I wrote an article for the Washington Post saying that the next president uh, would go directly from the inaugural ceremony to the White House to deal with Middle Eastern crises. And uh, the name of the article was called, uh, It's the Middle East Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it, it proved to be rather prophetic because um, I understood that the Middle East would, was and would remain a major source of, of violence and instability in the world and, uh, and would impact um, the United States uh, and that the American president would be uh, seized of the Middle East, as we say, uh, almost continuously throughout his, or at that time I thought maybe Hillary could be elected, her presidency. Um, and that's not changed. Uh, Donald Trump will find something very similar, because the Middle East is not like the Vietnam War, Philip, where American forces could uh, pull out, they could mm-hmm. you know, push the helicopters over the side of the aircraft carrier and go home, and be pretty confident that the North Vietnam Vietnamese Army was not going to follow you back home to Chicago or New York. That's not true of the Middle East. It's just going to follow us. It's, it's coming to a neighborhood near you, and uh, America can't afford to ignore it in any way. So America, as you just mentioned, has, has been involved uh, going back to the Eisenhower administration, if not before, but in the last period of time, uh, we see Russia at least more involved in a, in a public way or that we're aware of. Right. Would you would you call them now the dominant foreign power in the Middle East? Well, you and I uh, both spent most of our adult years um, in what we would call the Pax Americana of the Middle East. And that was the, uh, the Pax Americana that was established by Kissinger after the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Uh, Kissinger managed to kick the Soviets out of the Middle East and make America the unchallenged uh, military power and, and diplomatic power. Um, we have now seen that unravel. Well, the Obama administration, in, in an act which I, I find I found has no parallel in history, is the only um, military power to voluntarily dismantle itself uh, and, and certainly mm-hmm. even cloak that, that dismantling in virtue and to undo the Pax Americana. Um, whether by uh, signing the nuclear deal with Iran and giving Iran virtual legitimacy to, to pursue its dream of regional hegemony, but also allowing the Russians back into the Middle East. And today, uh, Russia may not be the, the dominant power in the Middle East economically, or perhaps even diplomatically, but, but certainly militarily. The, the Russians are presence here in that, that military involvement, which, by the way, they, they undertake at a very limited cost, about $3 billion a year, uh, has has given them uh, leverage not just in the Middle East but elsewhere throughout the world. It's quite extraordinary to see, and um, one of the hopes I think that all Israelis have, whether you're right wing, left wing, 
And it's a hope that I think we share with many of our neighbors is that the United States will return to be the, the preeminent power in this region. Let's hope so, uh, <laughs> because uh, at least we know what we had, as you said, is the Pax Americana, but yeah. the, the, the Pax Russia, who, who knows what we'll, we'll get from that. Uh, could, you, could you tell our listeners about your new appointment as Deputy Minister mm-hmm. and, and what your responsibilities entail? Well, Israel now is going through a, a very uh, dynamic juncture in, it, in its foreign policy. Uh, yes, we are being condemned at the UN still, but there's a gap between what's happening in the UN and what's happening on the bilateral uh, sphere. Um, the African countries that cut off relations with us after the 1973-74 oil boycott are today li- literally lining up uh, to restore relations with us. Our relations with China are unprecedented. Our trade with China is going up about 30% a year. India is one of our closest uh, friends in the world interesting relationship with Russia, with Eastern Europe, with Latin America. Now, uh, there's so much diplomatic work to be done, and uh, I'm here to make help the Prime Minister do it. Prime Minister is also the Foreign Minister right now, and there's just no shortage of diplomatic work to be done. The world wants what we've got. Uh, we've got technology. We've got the experience in fighting terror. We have strong relations uh, with the United States. We have good relations with Russia. China. Uh, we have an army that's more than twice as large as the British and French armies combined, wow. and uh, and everyone wants to have relations with us, and it's amazing. So eventually, this will find expression in UN voting. It'll take a while. It will take a while. And one of the the goals that Prime Minister Netanyahu has set for himself is, is breaking this automatic majority in the UN. Um, in February, he'll be traveling to Fiji uh, as well as Australia. But Fiji is interesting because Fiji represents a coalition of 14 uh, Pacific nation islands. Uh, some of them only have a couple thousand inhabitants, but each one of them has a vote that's equal to that of China in the General Assembly. Hmm. So if you go there, you get 15 votes. I hope you're on that trip. <laughs> I'm dying to go to Fiji. <laughs> I'm dying. I've always wanted to Fiji. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so it, it's never dull, and every, every week I meet with, um, with foreign leaders, every week. It really sounds exciting, and uh, and like you say, it seems like everyone wants uh, wants to come here and 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 do some kind of business with mm-hmm. us. We've earned it. We've been a soldier, historian, ambassador, parliamentarian, and now member of the Israeli executive branch. Are there common skills that you've used in all these challenging roles? Yes, there are. First of all, knowledge of history, because there's no substitute for it. Mm-hmm. If you know your facts. Um, if, you're the, if you're the most knowledgeable person in the world historically, um, that is an immense advantage. So either rhetorical skills, writing skills, perhaps the most important skill I have learned over the years, believe it or not, is listening. Mm. Um, ambassador has to learn to listen. Listen well and, uh, and, and process the information that, that you're given. Writing history, like speaking to you on this phone, uh, like being in government, is a matter of decision-making. A writer has to decide what goes into a sentence, what doesn't go into a sentence. You could have a hundred different facts. They could all be interesting. You can only choose one. So decision-making is also a skill that I've used again and again. And I say, that, I don't know if this is a skill, Philip, but it, it's uh, love of the Jewish people, love of the Jewish state. Yes. A belief that we're here for a purpose, all that. <laughs> Not a skill, but it's what keeps you going in all these different positions. So just to add on to that, when, when you're in a conversation, when you were ambassador and you're, you're really having to listen, uh, are you taking notes, or do you like remember, and then you know when you get out of the room, you 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 sit down and and compose your thoughts? No, there's there is a, a there's a protocol taker, uh-huh. okay. <laughs> the person who writes a protocol. But 
while you're listening, you're listening not, not just for what people are saying, but you're also listening for how they say it and what they are implying between the lines, which is often at least as important as what they're actually saying. Okay, that's, that's a great answer. All right, I'll ask you to put on your uh, pr- prediction hat for the last question here. Yeah. All of us want to know, what, what can we in Israel expect in 2017, and will we feel an immediate difference after uh, Donald Trump becomes president? Well, I, yeah, I've always said, as an historian, I'm, I'm much better off at predicting the past. Uh, <laughs> okay. but, um, and no one knows for certain what uh, President-elect Trump's policies are going to be. In some ways, he looks uh, much like the isolationist that Obama was, uh, albeit for completely different reasons. Um, but we've already seen in, in the last week and a half during the, the U.N. Security Council resolution, during uh, Secretary Kerry's speech, how uh, Donald Trump stood with us. Um, the Prime Minister has expressed his, his gratitude again and again, um, and he's indicated that he would look favorably at moving the, the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We would greatly welcome that move. He's talked about ripping up the Iran nuclear deal, and believe me, you won't find much opposition to that here. Um, I think it's going to be, it's going to be very different. That doesn't mean he won't be involved in Middle East peace prop, uh, peacemaking. We don't know. He's, he's, he's indicated that he's interested. Um, but keep in mind, I think that, that there are important, there are two important uh, lessons, pieces of advice, let's put it this way, that I would, I would give to your listeners um, who care about Israel. One of is that um, Israel, for Israel, bipartisan support in the United States is a a paramount strategic interest, and we should never forget that there are two parties. Democrats are, are down now, um, but we should not. Uh, we should be reaching out to them and strengthening our ties with Democrats as well, even with progressives. Someday they'll be back. Correct, correct. Uh, the second issue is that one is very controversial in my own government. There are members of the Israeli government, some parties who want to annex part of the West Bank, who want to chuck the two-state uh, solution into the garbage can, um, I think to very much to the contrary, that uh, conditions uh, have never been better for Israel. They're unlikely to be better for Israel. And it, I know, while I'm not naive and, and I don't think that we can reach a two-state solution with, with a Palestinian leadership that is corrupt, unelected, uh, unwilling, and probably incapable of signing agreement with us, we can move to create a better political horizon for both Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, working with closely with this administration, something we could not do with the previous administration, and working with uh, with Sunni Arab states that um, that share so many of our interests today. So that would be my my advice moving into uh, this new presidency in 2017. It, it certainly will not be dull. That that I uh, I think we could both agree to. Not at all. Not for, <laughs> for not for a second. I I really thank you for this, and and personally, it's been a pleasure and a. a privilege to be able to know you all these for many years and see how your career has taken and uh, and I really thank you for the time you gave to my listeners tonight my pleasure my honor I hope you enjoyed our podcast feel free to visit us at www.pstein.com or look for Philip Stein and Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn 